don't know. I had a really hard time. She really annoyed me. I've never found a character to be so annoying as Emma. That's what's awesome about this style is it doesn't ask you to feel anything. It just shows mm-hmm. it to you. But by virtue of the writing, you completely go into Emma's headspace and feel all of her emotions alongside her in a way I don't think you could have pulled off with a different style. Everything that immediately surrounded her, the tiresome countryside, the idiotic petite bourgeoisie, the mediocrity of life, seemed to her an exception in the world, a particular happenstance in which she was caught, while beyond her, as far as the eye could see, extended the immense land of felicity and passion. In her desire, she confused the sensual pleasures of luxury with the joys of the heart, elegance of manner with the delicacy of feeling. Welcome to Band Book Club. I'm Nick. <laughs> and I'm Raffaella. That was a quote from Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. So, off the bat, I just gotta say, what's the deal with these French guys? I know. Flaubert, Camus, Houellebecq, Celine, all their stuff is just so depressing, so bleak. And I get it, you know, if you're Dostoevsky or something, whose stuff is a lot more hopeful, by the way. If you're Dostoevsky and you grew up in Russia and lived through some objectively horrible stuff, why you would be so cranky in your writing. Right. But these French guys, for the most part, they're middle class or well-to-do men. Yeah. Very well-educated and they're living in France, you know. It couldn't ba- have been that bad. Yeah, baguettes, sunshine, <laughs> accordion, music playing at the cafe. Oh, That's what I was trying to understand while I was reading this. Like, what are you complaining about? And it seems like the thing that they all have in common, these French guys, is this intense hatred for just, like what you said in the quote, middle class, yeah. mediocre. The bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie the upper sort class, of stuff. Yes. And I'm trying to figure out if that is a righteous anger or not, or if it's pointing to something that's actually important. And I guess that's what we're going to figure out today and really what this book is about, because at the end of the day, Madame Bovary is probably the most hateful book towards the middle class that I've ever read, but maybe in a, yeah. in a good way. Well, we'll see. Let's we're, dig in. We're going to unpack that. Well, Gustave Flaubert, as as a person, was really influential as a writer. I mean, no one had written the way he wrote. Invented modern realism. Yes. And this was one of the most detailed books I have ever read in my life. I mean, there were times it was getting a little bit boring, but... I appreciated this different type of writing, something I was not used to at all. But Well, whether you appreciate it or not, I don't think people even know this a lot of the times just because of how pervasive it is. But whether you like this style or not, it ended up becoming basically the definitive style mm-hmm. for all of modern writing. I mean, before, that's what um, James Woods says in this How Fiction 
Works book, which is kind of a gospel book for fiction writers. But he says there really is a time before and after Flaubert. And before it was, you know, the romantic 16th century guys where you would have like a 2000 page book about some guy's feeling about, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a cookie or something. But Flaubert really cut it down. He was the first author to look at things like a camera would look at them. And again, whether you like that or not, that's what's stuck. And that's kind of the standard that most writers since then have been aiming for. But I, I thought it was amazing in this. It it was a really great novel. I mean, just a little background. What 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 is this book about? So it obviously is about the Madame Bovary, which is funny that the book is even called Madame Bovary. Well, there's actually three Madame Bovaries in the book. Exactly. So um, really, we're talking about Emma Bovary, who's married to Charles Bovary. So that's where she gets her name. So she doesn't even have her own identity, really. She's Madame Bovary, even though everything in her mind is all about me, 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 me. It's about this young girl who reads a lot of books and she pictures specifically romantic, romantic novels. novels, bad ones too, <laughs> like cheesy ones. And she just expects that's what her life is going to be like. She's going to have this, uh, you know, knight in shining armor or she's going to have this perfect man who's going to have these romantic getaways and she's going to live this super aristocratic life. And, you know, all she wants is just indulge in all the most beautiful fantasies. And that's what she thinks life is going to be like. But she marries this uh, young doctor who's actually not a very good doctor. He's super boring. He's very vanilla. <laughs> like if you had to pick a word. And his mother it. is the first Madame the Bovary. The first Madame Bovary, who's yes. Had, it seems like an unsuccessful, unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. And she, like a lot of mothers do, she kind of puts all her frustration into making her son's life perfect. So she wants him to be a doctor. She wants him to be rich. She sets him up with a woman that she thinks will be a good match mm-hmm. for him, who's the first Madame Bovary, who seemed like basically a gross, annoying, boring, rich woman. And she gets killed off Yeah, soon. it's like first couple pages in, so she When she, she finds dies. out her inheritance or whatever goes away. And then that's when the Madame Bovary, Emma, comes in. And she's really our main character, our main subject for mm-hmm. this book. And at first she's really in love with Charles, but then as marriage is uh, happening to her, she's realizing it's not all what she thought it was going to be. He's just not very romantic. He's pretty stale. She just kind of deals with him, but always fantasizes about leaving, you know, looking into the aristocratic life. And she carries on a couple of affairs, which... I will say this just because this is the banned book club. Why is this book banned? What's so bad? So this was the first time a book was really exploring adultery. So there was... Well, (laughs) there's certainly been adultery and cheating and sex in books pretty much since they've existed. But I think the banning for this came in when Flaubert aimed that super high amount of detail specifically at the adultery in this Mm -hmm. book. Not that it's at least by today's standards obscene or, you know, super hardcore. Yeah, there's nothing crazy in it, but But you got to contextualize it for the time it was written. And back then, yeah, it was shocking to people. 
it wasn't showing a traditional way of of love and marriage you know it was really focusing on that adultery that was happening and and it, he, the the book was placed on trial in 1857 which was right after it was published and i think in the forward in this book which by the way this is an amazing translation if you want to get your hands on it. it's the lydia davis translation but in the forward when it's talking about the trial it said that the charges were, were, at least what I got, being a danger to morality and religion. But that trial only lasted one day, and Flaubert ended up being fine. <laughs> Another thing I've got to mention, this was either right before or right after, um, what's his name? Flowers of Evil. Um, Baudelaire. Baudelaire also went on trial for obscenity in his writing in France, and he did not get off okay but anyways Mm. just fun fact (laughs) more crazy french people but but yeah i mean just to really sum it up i mean just like that opening quote she just longed for something different and life was not what she expected it to be and she's basically this big brat the entire novel i don't know i have never found a character to be so annoying as emma bovary was it was kind of hard for me to read this book because I just wanted to tell her, can you grow up? Seriously, can you just grow up? Um, but yeah, I mean, people really love this novel because they sometimes see themselves in Emma Bovary. I mean, who doesn't want like this perfect life where everything goes your way and you have a ton of money and you can just party and drink and not worry about children or a family? So, But we can get into all of the nitty gritty i know you want to talk about the prose and the writing and why it's so significant with a book like this yeah well i mean the word here is modern realism i mean that's the thing that flaubert invented this new style that kind of paved the way for all the writing we've covered on this show Mm -hmm. but it's actually an interesting story how he got to that point so flaubert himself was not like a genius writer off the bat. He was, I mean, there's some similarities oddly between him and some of the people in this book, but he was the son of a rich surgeon in France, like Charles in the book. Hmm. And he was, if you read about his life, he seems basically like what would be the equivalent today of like an insecure Reddit boy who's, you know, thinks he's kind of smart, but also is like kind of, socially awkward and wants to approach women but can't and kind of takes refuge in books. So he was trying to be a lawyer at the advice of his family or whatever. Didn't work out and uh, his family died, got a big inheritance and he basically lived in this house by the Seine River for the rest of his life and focused on writing. He took a few stabs at it when he was really young and he he wrote a draft of a book that would later be a big deal for him. I forget the name. And then he wrote another book called The Vision of St. Anthony, I think, something like that. And he was so excited about it that he got all of his friends to come over to his house for a four-day reading. That sounds fun. And um, I love this story because it, it said he finished the the reading four days and he was waiting to hear what they thought about it. And when he asked them, they basically just said, oh, 
that's kind of a lame book. It's a little too bloated. Maybe you should bring it back down more to earth because it was a book about him seeing a painting and just all the (laughs) feelings that came out of that. So Flaubert, I think, really took that criticism to heart and (laughs) he went back and wrote probably the most emotionally neutral, cold Mm camera-like story that anyone had seen since then. And it was about a subject as real as it gets, you know, just everyday mundane life. And specifically, he took inspiration from a story in the newspaper about a woman who was married. She'd had all these affairs. Her husband found out that basically they were bankrupt because of all the money she'd been spending and she killed herself, which is essentially the plot of this book. But he he brought spoilers it, ahead. Yeah, he brought all the writing back down to earth. Used this very hard, uh, almost clinical sort of style, mm-hmm. normal, real life plot, and it was kind of a home run. I mean, it wasn't easy. He, Flaubert is also famous for being like one of the biggest perfectionists in fiction. He would spend, rumored to have spent like four days on one page yeah there's there's a thing he was uh he pursued the principle of finding le mot juste so like the correct word the right word he always wanted to do his work justice um he didn't just write willy-nilly but that's how so that's how he got to the point of developing that style but and in, in this book i was talking about uh, how fiction works with james woods i think um mr woods <laughs> Although this guy is like an extremely pompous writer himself. This, this mm. is a good book. And I think he sums up what Flaubert did a little bit better than I can. Let me just read this real quick. This is Flaubert and Modern Narrative. Novelists should thank Flaubert the way poets thank spring. It all begins again with him. There really is a time before Flaubert and a time after him. Flaubert decisively established what most readers and writers think of as modern realist narration and his influence is almost too familiar to be visible. We hardly remark of good prose that it favors the telling and brilliant detail, that it privileges a high degree of visual noticing, that it maintains an unsentimental composure and knows how to withdraw <laughs> like a good valet from superfluous commentary, that it judges good and bad neutrally, that it seeks out the truth even at the cost of repelling us, and that the author's fingerprints all on this are, paradoxically, traceable but not visible. You can find some of this in Defoe or Austin or Balzac, but not all of it until Flaubert. So that really sums up what modern realist narration is. It's just, to me, it's like a movie. Mm -hmm. You don't, I mean, unless you have an annoying movie where there's a narrator telling you how to feel or like the music telling you how to feel all the time. It's just a camera showing things Mm -hmm. the way they are. Shots and cuts and pans. And that's what this book is. Well, I want to touch on some of the things you said, but uh, this is actually a quote from Flaubert saying, an author in his book must be like God in the universe, present everywhere and visible nowhere. Which I think also sums up what you said. But you also said something about how... um, with uh with the writing being super 
analytical or really detailed, just saying how um, sometimes it can maybe even repel the reader, but you should do that because if you're trying to get a point across, it's okay if you repel a reader. But there, there are so many moments in this book where the writing is so analytical. It's just so detailed on the subject matter, but it's so funny when things are happening in the book, like when Emma is having an affair or she's running away or she's having these thoughts of living a different life, the book speeds up and is much shorter. But when it comes to just like the everyday life, it slows down completely. I mean, her affair with uh, Leon or whoever, it's, it takes like a page, a page or two, I actually had to go back and read. I was like, that's it? That's all we get out of this affair? I was expecting the same amount of detail. Yeah, and, th- and that's definitely not an accident. I mean, that's one thing that can be really exciting in fiction when it's done well is when form syncs up perfectly with content like that. And it's like real life when something's happening that you're excited about, that you're enjoying. How much faster does time move than when it's just a Monday? It's and- true. It's you know, true. Time you're, you're flies when you're having fun. <laughs> yeah. It's literally the definition of that. So how did you feel about just the raw amount of detail in this book? Did you think it, I mean, considering what we just said, did it serve the story or did you feel like some of the people I've read critiquing this book that, well, maybe some of the newer readers coming into it because critics certainly are <laughs> slobbering all over it. But a lot of people felt like there was too much detail in this book and that it was unnecessary. But did it work for you? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Before we continue, a quick interruption. Want to purchase the book we're discussing in this episode? Well, check out Bookshop. Bookshop is an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. As more and more people buy their books online, Bookshop has created an easy, convenient way for you to get your books and support bookstores at the same time. Bookshop will give away over 75% of their profit margin to stores, publications, and authors. If you want to shop the books we've covered on the podcast, visit the link down below in the description. We do receive a small commission based on sales, so thank you for all your support of our channel and podcast. I will I will say there were times it was tough. It was the same kind of toughness like you get with Patrick Bateman talking about the double-breasted wool suits. I mean, I get why it's there, but maybe I could have taken 20% less of the detail in this book. But it really immersed you in the world and you understood every single detail. I mean, I think of something like Dune being incredibly detailed and it serves a purpose. But those but, were, in, I mean, the details in Dune would be like, this berry can make you, I don't know, see in the dark (laughs) or, you know, this knife is magic or, you know, this suit sucks out your poop and turns it into water that you can drink. Like interesting details. But the bulk of these details are really banal and everyday. And I can understand somebody reading it and questioning, why is this even here? Why are you telling me? But... I guess it's just to add to how mundane real life is and that's why it's all there. Well, I think it there is a reason for it. It is totally earned and it it gets to one of the really cool things about the perspective he chose for this novel, which is third person free and direct. 
since you're not nailed down to a, one character's voice and one character's thoughts like you would be in first person, you get to be like that camera. Like yeah, you're God, on the outside. Almost. Everything's objective. Yeah, you can float around wherever you want. The only rule is you have to be neutral about it. But what's cool about the way he handles it in this book is he's able to describe these things like, you know, just a boring afternoon in Emma's house or walking in the countryside or going to a fair. And while still being neutral and not speaking through the voice of that character, you're able to tell by virtue of just how it's written in those parts that this is what Emma's seen. It's not what the other characters are seeing or what this, you know, disembodied God that's telling you the story is seeing. It's her feelings. Like one of my chap favorite chapters was um remember at the beginning when they go to that party and she gets She's her looking first looking through the window? No, well they actually go into the party. She goes yeah. with Charles and this is when she gets like her first taste, taste of like of the amazing life she yeah, wishes the, she the had. The upper class life. And uh there's just these long descriptions of the manicured terraces and then inside like the lobsters steaming and the felt on the pool table and then the people themselves, mm -hmm. like how fine and fancy they are. And it has this, the scene has a beautiful climax where she's looking at an old man at the end of the table and I mean, but it never tells you she's looking. Again, it's still third person removed. Mm -hmm. But it's talking about this old man after all this opulent stuff and saying, you know, you know, Greece was dribbling down his chin and he was disgusting and old, but you could tell that he was some important count or something <laughs> and he, that he had slept with Marie Antoinette and done all these amazing things. And you realize that Emma is so deeply enamored in all this stuff that she even sees this she ignores decomposing greasy yeah. dribbling corpse of a man as something mm -hmm. beautiful and that's what's awesome about this style is it doesn't ask you to feel anything it just shows mm -hmm. it to you but by virtue of the writing you completely go into Emma's headspace and feel all of her emotions alongside her in a way I don't think you could have pulled off with a different style so that's why I think the all the details, even from the mundane ones to the really fancy ones, I think all of them were earned in this book because it was able to make me feel that way without ever asking me to with, while still being removed. But I can get why some people might, might be yeah, a little turned might off. Feel, might feel like it's getting to a point where it might be a little bit too boring. But no, I, I agree it. It definitely serves a purpose. It just, it could get kind of tough at, at times. But that's what made it modern in a way. Like a lot of it reminded me of an HBO show, you know, like, or something like The Sopranos where, I mean, how many scenes were there of Tony going to get orange juice or going to pick up the paper? Yeah, or, just everyday things. Yeah, you. That's. I mean, that's what real life is though. It's yeah that stuff and then... The other crazy stuff, which I won't mention, but... Well, you know, one little, um, I guess, I don't know what the word is, symbol that happens in the book is there's that blind beggar who pops up randomly throughout the book. And I don't know if he's supposed to symbolize, like, you know, 
reality just kind of following her around or almost like a devil of some sorts but he's actually under the windowsill when she's dying which i mean i don't know if you want to get to that point yet but yeah yeah let's that is my favorite scene in a book like i have a lot of scenes in books that i really enjoy but that is one of the best scenes in a novel is when she's dying i think it's it's important to talk about specifically the ending to this book because I mean, the content of the whole thing was modern. You know, it's, it's like what we have today. Housewives are aboard with, <laughs> you know, their lives watching TV or watching, looking at romantic novels and wanting something better. That's a modern idea by itself. But what really made this book modern to me was the way it ended. And what I mean by that is after Emma goes through her two affairs with Leon and Rodolphe. A normal novel, I think, at this point when Flaubert was writing, would have had some sort of deus ex machina or nice, clean thing to wrap it up, and everything would be okay. Yeah, like maybe she would go away with Rodolphe and have this beautiful marriage. Or or she she would have like a near-death experience and learn her lesson and go back to Charles and say, oh, I love you, you know, I enjoy life now, I appreciate it. But what was so hard and cold and modern about this was that the opposite of that happens. Mm -hmm. Nothing was okay. She realizes she's messed up so bad that she puts arsenic in her mouth. And there, maybe it was not as long as it felt like, but it felt like a very long stretch of the book just describing her death. Her death? Oh my God. Tons of detail she wanted Complete brutality. I thought what was so crazy was like how she always pictured her life being so romantic. And then they give her just this disgusting, drawn out, horrific death where she's just choking and like her face is contorted. And oh, yeah, it was it becomes like most, a horror novel. The most unglamorous the, ending possible. Not cute. Not and, a cute way to die. <laughs> and it doesn't end there either. No. Yeah. After she basically the, ruins is, Charles. life. This is when it really gets good. So she dies in a totally ugly way, not redeemed at all. And Charles still loves her. And he's he really paying, did. he's paying a ton of money for her coffin, gets her the best funeral possible and then some time goes by and he discovers in her desk the letters that she had been writing to her lovers this man had no idea yeah he was <laughs> god bless him i mean he was he was really dumb he was like close. he was a dumb guy. i want to get back to charles later though because i like him too but anyways he figures out what was going on he still loves her i know he still loves her what but a guy. but um his life i mean he's already been financially ruined just gets worse and worse after that. And he eventually dies just sitting on a bench or something one day. And then the final <clears throat> ending of the book is the daughter who meant absolutely nothing to Emma the whole time. Yeah, she never really cared for this kid they had together. After the Emma and Charles have died, this daughter with no one and no inheritance left over gets shipped to like a textile mill or something. She's like forced to be a slave worker for the rest of her life. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty much it. Charles dies in like absolute debt too. Yeah. There's nothing left over. It's It's the least fairy tale ending (laughs) possible. And that was an awesome move for the writing for me. Nice. (laughs) Nice flow bear. But I mean, 
think about how many people though have uh, taken that and run with it. Like all the Brett Easton Ellis books we've read, The Stranger. Uh, Just having that hopeless ending. Yeah, that that move of the unromantic. Yeah rough in well Flaubert I was showing that. just like that that can be real life I mean that nobody, is real yeah, life nobody's gonna have this like perfect ending I mean life is suffering um it's it really was quite the ending the ending is one of my favorite parts of this entire book I actually really just prefer the ending of the novel and in a way I mean the whole book is kind of a cautionary tale of what can happen to you if you if you're like Emma and you ignore really reality take, or you you take all this really bad writing and bad media books movies to heart and you're expecting a fairy tale ending in your life someone to come in and sweep you off your feet your feet i mean there are consequences to that yeah, no, I because think you're not living in the real world. And and you know, of course, I don't think Flaubert could have predicted this, but just like how we have social media where I know we talked about this in our American Psycho episode, but how everybody wants to show off and show this amazing life and people think, oh, I can do that or I have that kind of life. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that because, I mean, at least until recently, people haven't been reading romantic, trashy novels, I think, in the same way they were before the internet. So the equivalent today is like girls and guys looking at, I don't know, streamers or yeah. whatever people on Instagram and internalizing all of that stuff in place of these romantic novels. Because I just I don't think people even read anymore. I mean, but. this book, I mean, if you look up like, uh, what is this book about? It's a study of human stupidity. And that's what people say about this book. It's people that are unwilling to resolve their own conflicts in life, deal with real reality or their real life, and it just ignore it. Felt like a the book was a contest of all the characters to see who could be more stupid. There were there were a lot of yeah but, stupid um, people in this. Let, I want to talk about some of them on their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, first let's get to let, let's talk about Emma first. I I don't know where to begin with her I think scare, I mean it was scary for me because I actually related to some parts of her character yeah I mean we all do you know the which is annoying the interest in literature the interest in religion she has as a kid the consumerism and then just the, on top of all that like the inability to stick with one thing and like actually care about it and commit to it. Yeah. But um, one thing I kept seeing people say in the reviews of this book was that the big accomplishment Flaubert did was he was able to take a character like Emma and make you empathize with her even and feel sorry for her. But given the fact that she had Charles a husband that actually loved her and gave everything for her and that she had a daughter who depended on her and that she had pretty much a good life in a safe, decent place and threw that all away. Did you feel sorry for her I by really the I really didn't. I never really connected with Emma 
that much. I mean, other than I guess there were times where, of course, we've all had that thought of like, oh, I wish my life was better and I could have all this money and not really work hard or deal with sickness or family or whatever. But I don't know. I had a really hard time. She really annoyed me. I've never found a character to be so annoying as Emma because it was like Charles is such a nice guy. Surely there was something you could have worked out with him. Like he loved her to death. He respected her. He gave her everything she wanted and she still wanted another man. I think it says something in the book like she hated him for the How very nice he was. Well, for the the sense of peace that he had yeah. that came out of loving her. Girl, but, come on. So you didn't feel sorry for him. I, I didn't. And I'm sure, I mean, I've also read a lot of reviews of this book and people are like, oh, I so relate with her. No, I do not. She was annoying. Well, Grow you can up. understand why people would relate with her, though. Yeah, because look at the society we live in today. You know, that's how I felt after I read the book, too, is I thought she was just a moron. Especially like I didn't want her to die such a horrible death though. Then I that's where I felt bad. I was like, oh, no. I, I mean, even that didn't bother me. Like no, the chickens like, had to come home to roost she didn't need for all, all this that. stuff. But I guess this the way she handled her kid really made me feel like, yeah, okay, you deserve all this. I don't really care about you. Yeah, you chose to but have a child. Like take care of that kid. I guess it was after I finished reading and I went back more into Flaubert's biography and learned more about him that Emma started to matter a little bit more to me. And the reason is, I think if you, knowing Flaubert's childhood, what he went through, he's basically Emma in this book, I think. And I kind of think... Isn't every author a little bit of themselves in their book? Yeah, I just didn't think he would, he was hiding under that character specifically. But... Yeah, right. I mean, he... He was a middle-class guy, too, unhappy with his life, um, consumerist. I think he was wrestling with this weird kind of guilt of being so, I don't want to say privileged, but of just being rich and you know not really having to do anything for it and looking for meaning in um, several affairs, just like Emma. Um, there's one interesting story uh, if you look up Flaubert on uh, the Atlantic magazine where he has he really goes head over heels as a young man for this like Greek woman or something but he's so awkward and you know not in touch with reality that he can't even talk to her and I mean he gets over that and he does end up having a bunch of affairs himself and seeing prostitutes and everything like that but it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning where with all these French guys with Flaubert, there's just this rage at middle-class mediocrity. And I think for him, Emma was a way of putting that aspect of himself under the microscope and really taking its task. And that knowing that and going back to the book, humanized Emma a lot more for me. I still don't think what she did was good and she deserved everything that happened to her, but I thought she was an amazing character and 
basically Flaubert himself in the novel. Exactly. I mean, I think it's almost like what we've talked about with a lot of our other books where, you know, it's almost like a big warning to these readers, you know, don't be like this person. Do you see this person that I'm spending all this time talking about? Um, it's, it's really just to show how you may want your life to go a, a different direction, but you might have to work a little bit harder to get there. If you do want to have that life or sometimes even if you are on a certain path, Life can just hit you over the head and and you know derail it. So it seems like if if we're going to take like the cautionary approach route to looking at this book, it would be saying something like, "Appreciate what you've got right under yeah. your nose. Love your family. Love all the mundane things. Like appreciate how much that's worth, and don't go seeking satisfaction outside of that." But the interesting thing, too, is Flaubert never had a family. He never had kids. I think he said his novels were like her, his kids. But um, That's sad. But I guess <laughs> that's the moral utility of reading this novel. But what about, what about Charles, since while well, we're still on characters? What mm-hmm. do you think about him? I'll, you go first. I mean, he's like a sad puppy. You know, he... He's just doing the best he can. He's a doctor, but he's actually terrible at being a doctor. And people are like way sicker. I love, I'm sorry. Than, I love the scene where he tries to fix that guy's foot. Yeah. That was there, brutal. There's a part in this novel. So Charles is a doctor. He has his practice in this little town. And a guy comes in with a young guy, like a club foot or something, right? Yeah. And Charles tries to fix it and... He thinks he's doing a big favor for this guy and he just makes it worse. Yeah, not not only does he not fix it, he just makes it worse. That was sad. I mean, there there was something really <laughs> depressing about Charles. Um he seemed like the dumbest doctor that ever lived. I mean, it was so obvious too that his wife was having an affair. I mean, she was like never around. She he was, was so oblivious. Yeah. But how many people are like that today? I mean, people don't realize, you know, maybe a relationship they're in or, you know, their own problems that are just staring at them right in the face. Well, I guess I wanted to ask you is, by the end of the novel, how did you really see Charles? Because I don't know whether to see him as the hero of the novel or the villain in a way for, I don't know, not trying, not making a bigger effort to be a part of Emma's inner life. Mm-hmm. Or if he's not a hero or a villain or just like part of this big amorphous, morally gray goop that <laughs> Flaubert paints this whole world that, as. I, I think, that? yeah, that's that's probably the best way to describe him. I but, mean, But he did love her like with, as her. best as he could have as a person. Yeah. Do you think that at least? I No, I agree. I don't think he could have tried he any harder. He just could have, I don't know, picked up on some of the cues that she was obviously giving. But what, but what were those cues? Because, you know, I think he could have been a little bit more attuned to Emma's feelings. But at the same time, and stop me if I'm wrong, but there's never a scene in the novel where Emma sits down with him and says, Where they actually hash it out. Well, she just tells him how he's feeling, even like mm-hmm. how she's feeling. If she had just no. told him once, like, I'm struggling 
with all this stuff, I'm in trouble. I don't know what's going on. Um, I need some help. And they just talked about that. Maybe probably could have saved some trouble, but she never even does that. That is because she hates him so much. I mean, she really could just say, Hey, it's not working out between you and I, we can go ahead and uh, split up. Cause I like this guy, Rodolph more. (sighs) I don't know. I felt bad for Charles. I did. I felt bad for him. I didn't feel bad for her. And I guess let's let's knock off just a couple more characters real quick that were interesting. Rodolphe and Leon, the two guys that mm-hmm. Emma has the affairs with. Very entertaining characters to me, especially Rodolphe. Yes. But I, what do you think about them? I mean, I'm I'm getting now both of them a little bit confused, but I know so one of re- them was real quick, like Leon was he's the young kind of inexperienced um romantic educated guy. He's trying to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um is he the one that just kind of like isn't into her anymore and just like leaves? Well, that ends up being both of them by the end. Yeah, they just but, um, stop being interested. Emma is attracted to Leon at first because so, she thinks he's always oh, an intellectual and he's so passionate. And, and he's part of that aristocratic life. Yeah, but he, he's not like an experienced guy with women. And um, they have their thing. And then Rodolphe is the opposite. You can tell she meets him at um, the county fair where they have, I love this scene. There's like pigs in the mud being judged and like the smell of manure in the air while he's flirting with Emma, who he spots from a mile away as an easy target. Like you can tell this guy has done this a million times. Oh yeah. He's definitely been playing a lot of women. Yeah. And um, it's just like a game to him. Yeah. And Emma falls for him instantly and he gets bored of her too. And he basically ends up telling her one day in a letter. I don't really feel like being with you. Yeah. He's like, I'm not, I'm not so into it anymore. I must be insane. Good luck with your life. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Both he, Rodolfo especially was a, a funny character. Well, Rodolfo like, she splits up with and then goes back to him and they get back together. But then they split it up again. Yeah, and I think the last affair she has is Leon, where um, I love uh, Thug Notes, by the way, on YouTube. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he said, like, she, go, she goes back to Leon, offers him everything. Yeah, I get yeah. <laughs> but even he, at this point, doesn't care. Like, and that, that was one of the, the sad and tragic things about the adultery part of the story is you realize that these affairs you get into trying to escape the boredom of your life end up being boring themselves like this, this she, the same boredom for Rodolphe and Leon eventually. And they just tell her bye. Ain't that cruel. Irony. I know the irony that is the subtext. And, um, I guess in terms of characters, like if there's anyone else to mention, what did you think about the the store owner guy? The guy who's keeping tabs on all the debt that Emma's racking up. And <laughs> right. To me, he was like the Grim Reaper or exactly. something. Yeah. No, he really is. He's like the most real person in her life. That's just kind of always checking in with her. And I know you also like the beggar guy yeah. who's blind and everything. Yeah. But, um, who's under the window while she's dying. 
Speaking of uh, YouTube channels like uh, Thug Notes, uh, I found another really good review of this book from a channel by, what's their name? It's Too Late to Apologize Book Reviews. And they were talking about this thing they see in the book that they called uh, The Luxury of Boredom. And how that was the thing that gave Emma and I guess Flaubert too, like the ability to have a nice life that they have. They don't have to constantly be fighting and working to live. Mm -hmm. You have all that's taken care of. So you have a chance to read books, read poetry, practice music. They have that, which gives them the chance to have a good life. But this channel was saying that that luxury of boredom is also the thing that ends up killing Emma in the end. And something about that really resonated with me, thinking about, I guess, middle-class American life today. You know, you we don't have to go forage for our food or <laughs> fight off invaders. We have so much time. All the information of history at our fingertips. We can learn anything, do anything. But most of the time, we just end up, you know... Doing the bare minimum? Yeah. I was going <laughs> to say jerking off metaphorically, but... Basically. Wasting it is what I yeah. mean. Like, And, and I, I saw some of myself in that regard in Emma... But I was wondering what you thought about that, just the luxury of boredom thing. Do you think yeah, right. that's like that's as dangerous as this book portrays it? I think so. I mean, I hate saying what I'm about to say, like, you know, we're the only uh, generation that, you know, can feel that boredom. I mean, back then there was no time to feel bored because you were constantly working so hard or trying to, you know, better your life or and like you said, like you, you didn't have to go forage or uh, work that hard for just food. We can go down the street and pick up a sandwich um, or make it. It's in our fridge. We have a fridge. And but, you find out who you are yeah. pretty quickly when, you know, you have to fight a bear in Survive. the woods or something. You, yeah, it's more yeah, about like survival. You would skip this whole part of Emma's life that she goes through in this book in about two minutes in a real day of work. And yeah. struggle. And do, I guess what I'm asking is, does that end up being like a blessing or a curse? Do you think? I think it actually becomes a bit of a curse because you do have all this time left over where you feel bored or you're like, oh, my life isn't going right. Or you have a minor inconvenience happening in your life and it's like the end of the world and you become as dramatic as Emma. I mean, there's a quote in the book where she says she wanted to die, but she also wanted to live in Paris. It's like, oh my gosh, we're, we're the only country or like the only generation that can make complaints like that. I mean, how many people do you hear on a daily basis? Like, oh, I want to die. You oh, don't yeah. really I mean, want to die. I think that's one of the reasons. <laughs> You're just annoyed. That's one of the reasons this book has stuck around. Mm -hmm. so it's so relevant as, today. Yeah. It became even more relevant. I mean, how many Emma Bovaries are there right now? We in, all know in American an suburbs. Emma Bovary in They're our like life. Rich or middle classish rich moms <laughs> that um, they're just sitting around thinking of like, 
I don't know. I don't want to minimize these people, but that's okay. They need to hear this. <laughs> well, maybe if they read it, you know, their lives would be different. And I guess that's another thing about the book is it shows you how important reading good books is. I mean, I think maybe if in the part of Emma's life in the beginning where she's reading all this romantic crap, she had picked up this same book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be stupid because it'd be a book about her, but. A no, book, I know what you mean. A book like that kind of has... Like a hard, realistic book. Maybe that could have changed the whole trajectory of her life. And I mean, I get, that's one cool thing that well-written and often banned literature can do is you get to live through the struggles of these things and take away the lesson and grow as a person without having to go through, I don't know, swallowing arsenic and dying in front of your kid. You know, right. I mean, come on. I mean, like we've we've probably harped on this a lot, saying how some of these classic literature books just have these life lessons. It's almost like a self-help novel, but wrapped up into a beautiful work of art. It's it's a it's a fictional novel, but it can teach you so much. It almost becomes a nonfiction novel. So I think this is such an important read. If you've not read this book yet, please try it. I had never heard about this book until you had mentioned it. Um, and I'm really glad I read it because you can see what a foundation a book like this has laid out. Yeah. And it really sums up what I love about good literature and sums up the difference to me between good art and popcorn fast food art. You can eat a hamburger or, you know, you could eat, I don't know, what's a fancy meal? like Something from Fogo de Chao. Yeah, something from, <laughs> I, you probably do better than that. But basically, you could take, you could read something that pushes you away from real life, like the stuff that Emma reads. And just be caught up in fantasy. Or there's the other art that pushes you deeper into real life. It makes and, you study yourself. And confronts you with it. And makes you tear down these parts of yourself that are fake or weak and will not hold up to reality. And that's, I felt like I went through a little bit of that reading this book. And I, that, that was the value for me. Other than it just being a total pleasure to read. What a delight. Well, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you haven't read this yet, pick it up, go read it. And we do thank you for being a part of our band book club. Make sure you like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. Um, we're on all of the platforms. So we thank you very much. And remember, if a book is banned, it's worth reading. <laughs> <laughs>